0: Shush, shush, quiet, quiet. My name is Glenda Reed, crack librarian, and I'll be your compere for this evening's wonderful evening of book-related fun and games. But if anybody makes too much noise, be warned, I shush to kill. So, if anybody's talking during the readings, you will be answerable to me and my date stamp. Got that? Yes. You will be... Dewey, decimated. Now, as you know, these things, we're living through very interesting times at the moment, very difficult times. We have an election looming, and uh, all of these nasty politicians are coming into my library trying to look things up. I had that nasty little Boris Johnson in my library the other day. He walked in, he said, Glenda, I'm looking for that new book that's just come out for men with very small (coughs) manifestos, shall we say. And uh, I said, "Well, I don't think it's in yet." He said, "Yes, that's the one. Have you got it? You got it?" I said, "No, absolutely not, you horrible little man." And then he said, "Have you got that other book about how to have sex with Shetland ponies?" I was like, absolutely disgusted. That's appalling. How low can you go? And he said, "Yes, that's the one. Have you got it?" Was like, absolutely disgusting, disgusting little man. Don't vote for him. And of course, but then uh, Jeremy Corbyn, on the other hand. Oh my word, when Jeremy Corbyn walked into my library, I thought, there's a man who would have made a great librarian. Oh, I wanted to rip off his book jacket. And uh, I know you may think, you may think I'm a little old for him, but I don't know. Um, I don't know. I thought, well, I'll write him a poem and see how it goes. What do you think? So (coughs) I'm just going to run it by you if that's all right. (coughs) So my poem is called. Corbyn's Cougar. <coughs> <laughs> Come to me, Jeremy, save my library. We shall labor amongst the stacks, debate bedrooms and mansion tax, to capital, das capital, stroking the covers of Marx and Engels, till sparks fly and my spine tingles. We will raise our reading glasses to the mighty working classes. Peers may jeer and Tories leer, but nothing more is to be feared, for every ear is turned to hear as you thrust out your splendid beard. A nation and my heart cheered for the sweet warbling of Jeremy Corbyn. Hand in hand, we will browse in our local bookstore. We have nothing to lose but our chain stores. No more being maudlin with Jeremy Corbyn marry me jeremy conquer the enemy we'll put war where it belongs in the war bin oh how my heart longs for jeremy (laughs) Corwin. so there we are and uh jolly oh hello uh lovely so and now we come to our first reader of this evening i'm very delighted to welcome this to the stage young Gail Tiber. Now Gail is going to read from her recent work about her life of running away from the suburbs as a young girl, dyeing her hair and coming and living among the fleshpots and dens of iniquity of London. Now I seem to remember you when you were young. You used to wear a lot of camouflage gear. Is that right? Because I, I remember you coming into my library and asking me where the books on camouflage were and I had to say, I'm sorry dear, they're here somewhere but I can't find them. Anyway, here we are, please welcome Gail t
1: Thank you so much. Ooh, it's one of those. I feel like I'm in the social club. It's great. Um, so some of you have already got my book, which is called Soap the Stamps, Jump the Tube. And it is an autobiography based on my life between the age of 18 to 30, not the holiday. That's another story entirely. But um, I'm going to read a few snippets. <clears throat> so it starts off with putting an advert in Sounds music paper. Does anyone remember Sounds? Yeah. Great stuff. Okay, so my advert went, Bored London Punkette, 18, seeks weird or interesting people for friendship and gigs. Reply to box number 13561. I placed the above advert in Sounds, a weekly new music paper that ran between 1970 and 1991. It really does have a lot to answer for. For a start, it was partly responsible for me joining and performing in post-punk synth bands, Adventures in Colour, and later, The Lost Cherries. I unwittingly placed the personal advert myself with the sole purpose of finding some like-minded friends in a world as yet unchanged by the internet and social media, I realise now, ignorantly, I advertise for weird people to write to me, meaning a bit unusual, a bit left field, you know. I'd been a punk since I was 14, and at 16 I'd bravely dyed my hair peacock blue, much to the disbelief of my conservative parents, with whom I lived in Morden in Surrey. A shithole southwest of London whose only came to fame is that it has no claim to fame and that it is a shithole southwest London. Okay. Funny if my parents came from Brixton, it's uh, kind of weird coming back here. So for a snippet from chapter number three, cherry red and other colours. <clears throat> Since placing the advert in Sounds, I've been writing to a, Blake, a bloke called Dave Hughes who lived in Silvertown, East London. Silvertown was famous for being the home of the tight Tate and Lyle sugar factory, the Sarson's malt vinegar factory and also close by, meaning the entire area often smelt of sweet vinegar. Dave was over six foot and slender with short black hair and Irish ears. In his letters he told me all about a band he was in called Adventures in Colour. He played the synthesizer and co-wrote the songs with their bass player. He said they needed a new lead singer and asked if I could sing. I said yes straight away, without really considering whether I actually could. I'd sung in the choir at school, surely that counted for something. The audition was held in a Ladbroke Grove bedsit rented by George, the other keyboard player. George was an olive-skinned Greek Cypriot with curly black hair and a wide cheeky smile. He fancied himself as a ladies' man. During one rehearsal, he boasted about the armchair being broken because he'd entertained two ladies on it simultaneously the previous night. I think the only person who believed this was George. I also met Lisa, the bass player, and other founder member of the band, a petite and boyish girl with a quirky dress sense and high hairstyle, which were not at all unusual in the 80s. Her hair was cropped and dyed a two-tone mix of amber and shocking pillar box red. She wore blue plastic clip-on earrings she'd bought in a flea market and had revamped with big red feathers. I was taller than average at five foot nine. And took a size 14 dress, voluptuous, I'd like to think, I wish, I wish. Whilst Lisa was a diminutive 5 foot 4 and took a size 8. But despite her weenness making me feel like I was on the wrong side of Hefty, I liked her immediately. In fact, we got on well together, and before I knew it, I was the lead singer in a band. I was the lead singer in a band. I'm not sure why I passed the audition, whether it was for my voice or because my short, spiky peroxide blonde hair with pink sides and dramatic 80s makeup fitted the image of the band. But what the fuck? I was the lead singer in a band. Can I do another one? Fabulous. So you have a choice of Greece. Yeah, let's do a bit of Greece. <clears throat> so I went on my travels to Greece on the magic bus. I got the feeling I was the first punk who had ever washed up on Paros's shore. I had vivid tango orange hair, which earned me an incredible amount of attention. The local kids were in awe of me and my flaming locks. I would shout hello and wave frantically as they went past. The adults were less convinced and didn't really know what I was or how to approach me. I would often turn my head to look at something, just as several Greek heads all turned away thinking I hadn't noticed them staring. I mostly enjoyed the attention, as no one took any notice of crazy color hairs in London anymore, whereas in Greece, people would build up the courage to come and touch my hair, which was a bit invasive, but I guess they thought I was an alien. I was also a strict vegetarian, but Greece, especially a remote Greek island, struggled to understand the concept of vegetarianism in the 1980s. I therefore lived most entirely on Greek salads, which fortuitously I learnt to love, despite being suspicious of this newfangled feta cheese and olive business when I first washed ashore. But much as I love Greek salads, a punk cannot live on feta cheese, olives, cucumber and tomatoes alone. It shouldn't have come as quite a shock to me that Greece was mainly full of Greek food, but it did. Coming from the UK where we've compensated for our lack of interest in traditional food by importing cuisines from every corner of the globe, I somehow thought it would be similar. I soon learned that most Greek restaurants serve the same selection of dishes, most of which contain meat. And even when they advertised Greek special ties, they were generally serving the same special ties as the restaurant next door. So stumbling upon a taverna that sold something as exotic as a jacket potato was like discovering buried treasure. On rare occasions, I'd spot a restaurant serving pizza. pizza the luxury of which cannot be overstated. If you've ever travelled as a vegetarian in a country that doesn't recognise the concept of vegetarianism, you'll know exactly what I mean. So I'll do a last short one, and then I'll let someone else have the stage. (laughs) So this is about um, friends who needed to make a bit of extra money. And uh, here we go. I had a couple of friends who worked the sex joints of Soho, and occasionally I would meet one of them for coffee and cake, me after a hard day sewing, her with a hard nights dancing. I was always slightly curious about the sleazy underbelly of London, so one day she took me to the joint where she worked, beyond the flickering neon live bed show sign was a creaking stairwell that led down to a dodgy basement for which the words dingy and dark might have been invented. In one corner, there was a large trunk with a cheap throw slung over it, positioned in front of a mirrored wall. I think I'd expected a bit more of a glamorous setting, but everything about this setup smacked of stomach churning sleaze. I sat down on the trunk and asked where the bed was. You're sitting on it, laughed my friend. I jumped off immediately. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. That's fascinating. Marvellous, marvellous. Now our next guest, our next reader of this evening is a famous photographer, Kevin Cummins. Over the last 40 years has taken some of the most iconic portraits of British rock and punk musicians, particularly in Manchester and in London. And his. Portraits have been everywhere, National Portrait Gallery, v all sorts of places. Um, this means, of course, that his books are mostly made of pictures rather than proper words. But never mind, they do say that a picture speaks a thousand words. So um, he's going to read to us from the introduction of his latest book, w- about, which is about the Sex Pistols in 1977. So please, on this Blue Monday, welcome Kevin Cummins.
2: Hello. I can't actually see a thing, and I've had to print this out really big, um, and I've not got my glasses with me. So if I miss a word or make one up, you'll know why. So uh, I've got Sex Pistols book coming out, which is a book about the last gig they ever did in the UK with Sid before they went to to America and imploded. and it's out next week, not today, so... But we have got other product at the back. Um, so, on the 4th of June, alongside a few curious onlookers, I went to see the Sex Pistols at the Lesser Free Trade Hall in Manchester. This has become one of the most seminal gigs in rock folklore. The audience of around 50 were suitably invigorated by the Pistols energy and DIY ethic that so much so we all went to form a band, or start a record label, or write, or in my case, photograph musicians for a living. There's probably, there's been several books written about this, and there's probably about 25,000 people who claim they were in that audience. It was the start of my career as a photographer for the NME, the the self-proclaimed world's biggest rock weekly. I worked closely with Buzzcocks, who'd brought the Sex Pistols to Manchester for this gig. It was one of their first outside London. And I met the Pistols manager, McLaren, who was also always supportive of Buzzcocks, and so by default was really supportive of me in my first year out of art school. He used to let me know when the Pistols were playing secret gigs, and he'd always ensure I had a good spot to photograph them from. Many pistols gigs seem to be clandestine events for the chosen few. The fear and loathing of the Sex Pistols by local councils, fueled by the pernicious and duplicitous UK media, was something McLaren was usually able to turn to his advantage. He was a smart manipulator, and he understood that the scarcer the gigs, the more frenzied the fans would be. He loved playing games, The band, meanwhile, was typical of any band in that they just wanted to play live. They were really frustrated by this circus Malcolm was constructing around them. On Christmas Day, 1977, at Ivanhoe's in Huddersfield, Sex Pistols played what was to be their final UK concert until their return in 1996. The gig was part of a hastily arranged series of concerts made after discussions with several local councils who agreed to let the band play in their town in this this December in 77. The short tour was promoted as, never mind the bands, the Sex Pistols will play. Even then, several performances were cancelled at the last minute after dubious police advice. The tour didn't take in Britain's major cities, It read more like a few chapters from J.B. Priestley's seminal 1934 travelogue, English Journey. Indeed, Priestley visited Huddersfield, which he notes, it's not a handsome town, but yet is famous in these parts for the intelligence and independence of its citizens. Whether they really deserve this reputation, I've never been able to discover. Over half the tickets for the Huddersfield gig, were printed with no date or venue, just a series of question marks and a phone number. The grateful recipients had to ring on the 23rd of December to find out when and where their £1.75 would take them to see Britain's most notorious band. McLaren rang to invite me for the day. He told me that Julian Temple would be filming and it was to be a benefit for striking firefighters' families in the afternoon and then they'd play a regular concert in the evening. The fact that the gig was on Christmas Day was quite a surprise. It was unheard of to go to a gig, never mind a Sex Pistols gig, on this most sacred of days. My parents were apoplectic with rage when I refused a glass of port with my Christmas pudding and casually announced that I was off to nearby Huddersfield to see the Antichrist and pals in concert. I didn't uh, dare attempt to go for the whole day, unfortunately. I thought it was pushing it to leave the house at all. My father didn't speak to me for at least three weeks afterwards. The only reason he didn't change the locks was because the whole of Britain shut up shop on Christmas Day. Clockwork Orange, the 1962 Anthony Burgess novel, was a huge influence that was shared both by factory records boss Tony Wilson and Malcolm McLaren. I've crossed some of this out, so I now don't know why I've crossed it out. Um, Malcolm was fascinated by the manner in which Kubrick's film satirised the media's faux horror of every generation's youth culture. Alex, played by Malcolm Dowell in the movie, is motivated to subvert society and is violent just because he enjoys violence. He's intelligent and has plenty to say, far more than his dim-witted gang members, but he chooses to use violence over reason. Later in the film, Alex is used by the government as a propaganda tool, an example of all that's wrong with society. The tabloids lapped it up, of course, and to me, this is almost McLaren's template for his vision of the short history of the pistols. Leiden's own influences were slightly more muddled, his public persona was a hybrid of picaresque villainy and social satire. He also drew heavily on vaudevillian characters from the music hall and carry on films, all wonderful great British institutions. Another of John's influences was Pinky, the teenage gang leader in Graham Greene's 1938 novel Brighton Rock, a character who challenges or alienates everyone in his life. The product of a Catholic education, it's no surprise that Lydon read Graham Greene. In fact, devouring every work written by Graham Greene was de rigour at my Catholic grammar school, too. Meanwhile, McLaren increasingly promoted the band as Dickensian street urchins playing out some situationist fantasy that would ultimately implode. His handwritten flyer for the Huddersfield gig Reproduced a George Cruikshank illustration of Dickensian urchins with text written by Malcolm using a sharpened length of dowel dipped in ink and signed Oliver Twist. McLaren's cartoon vision of the band was at total odds with the way the actual band members saw themselves. Lydon was and is convinced that Malcolm wanted everything to unravel in a sensational manner. Hence his arranging a U.S. tour in early January of redneck bars and venues in the Deep South. However, I suspect that even McLaren, the arch manipulator, didn't expect the unravelling to be so dramatically sensational as they left Heathrow on that January morning in 1978. It was always exciting to be at a Pistols gig, but this night in Ivanhoe's was doubly exciting. Malcolm's Christmas present to me was to invite me to shoot the show from the stage. I actually couldn't believe I was sharing a stage with my favorite live band at the time. It's very different to shoot from the stage. You get a real sense of what it's like to be in a band, to be adored. It also makes for great photographs because you can get the audience in shots and capture the energy, the emotion, and the absolute buzz in the room. The gig passed in a blur. Banwari men's that night. They were naturally in high spirits due to the party they'd had with the kids that afternoon. Even Sid occasionally broke into a smile. Everything came together. The audience was as important as the performance. We thought they'd go on to world domination. We had no idea it was about to be their final curtain. Thank you.
0: Fascinating. Whole world I know nothing about. Marvellous. Thank you very much, Kevin. Now, our last reader for the first set is going to be Garth Cartwright. Now, we have more uh, music-related excitement here because um, his latest book is called Going for a Song, and it's a chronicle of the UK record shop, and it tells social history of Britain through record sales, which sounds fascinating to me. When I was when I was young, going for a song was a TV show. It was like a, a, a slightly upmarket cash in the attic, really, but um, that's what I remember. But I'm no stranger to music myself, and I'm glad that uh, our DJ Andrew is playing my favourite song as we speak, which is, of course... John Cage's 4 minutes 33, which I like to play at top volume at home all the time. Anyway, so without further ado, please welcome Garth Cartwright.
3: Hello there, hootenanny. Oh, those candles look nice and warm. I spent half an hour in Peckham waiting for the 37 that never turned up to come and sustain you for five minutes. So, going for a song. I don't know if you can see it from down there, but that's a lovely uh, young Ms Bjork, shopping in Ray's Jazz in Shaftesbury Ave. I started researching this book a decade ago, 2009. It was kind of like a, a virus had hit. Record shops, they seemed to be closing at an alarming rate. You, you probably remember, there used to be the huge Tower Records right in the centre of Piccadilly Circus. It went. Richard Branson's Virgin Megastores used to be everywhere they went our price now now they were truly everywhere the 300th our price opened in brixton just down towards the railway bridge i think it's a pound store now um they all went lots of great independent shops went so seeing i can't play or sing a note but i spend too much of my time listening to music buying music reading about music and that uh you know i'm uh, and it, is it the habitue of uh, record shops, and and seeing like even Berwick Street, that great street in Soho, that used to have dozens of record shops on it and around it, you know, little basement techno shops and big rock shops and Daddy Cool, the world's grouchiest dub reggae shop, and that they were all going. So I thought I, I I have to kind of somehow document this stuff, you know, just to leave a historical archive, and um. I was, I guess, you know, my connection to it, obviously my accent gives it away. I grew up in New Zealand and in New Zealand you get all the major records released. EMI, you know, Virgin and such, so we got the Sex Pistols and the Clash and all that stuff. But if you wanted the stuff you read about in sounds that you had mentioned earlier, say little punk bands or, you know, lo-fi bands or, um, you know, just weird stuff, You'd go through the back of Sounds and send off a postal order to the little record shops like Small Wonder in Walthamstow, Rough Trade in Ladbroke Grove, and weeks later, get these little packages full of amazing 45. So I always had this idea of these, you know, London being this kind of a wonderland of independent record stores full of, you know, vinyl treasure. Obviously, living here since the early 90s, you know, I used to go out to Croydon, where my relatives lived, and go to Beano's the largest second-hand record shop out in, uh, in, the, in Europe. And, and i just wander around, and wherever I go, I like all kinds of music. So whatever I'd find, I'd um, you know, head into. When I first shifted into Peckham in the 90s, there used to be little African record stores, and you'd go in there and pick up kind of cheap CDs from Nigeria and stuff like that, or, um, you know, th- little soundtrack shops, and, you know, East European shops. But they have old, you know, communist era records, just all kinds of stuff. I just love a record shop. So th- the idea was, because no one had ever chronicled this stuff, you know, there's books on Branson, and, and obviously Richard Branson made his first fortune through selling rock records at the start of the 70s, and then parlayed this into a record label, and then everything else that uh, we would rather not discuss. But um, all kinds of good things. Rough Trade, the label that obviously released the stiffs, I saw the Smiths and now does Lancome and great stuff like that. It started as this little Ladbroke Grove record shop. So this was my idea, the concept of describe how these, you know, specifically across the UK, record shops grew to be so important that so many musicians, so many labels, just so much happened out of them. They were kind of cultural hubs, you know, hot spots for all kinds of Creative activity and and where people met friendships or bands or whatever else you know I mean <coughs> record shops were really central to um, you know these islands' musical culture a- and obviously the UK also has the world's oldest record shop which is Spillers in Cardiff which opened in 1894 which meant it was selling wax cylinders back in the day when the only way you could hear recorded music was a wax cylinder. So, I started by going to Spillers, which is still run these days, not by the same people, obviously, and then just wandered around the u k so the book becomes a kind of journey, a social history, just just seeing what 's there, what 's not there. I mean, so many record shops have gone, you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds have closed uh, you know uh, since really the start of the century I mean it wasn't just obviously as people think you know downloading. A lot of it was Amazon, making it much cheaper to buy f- from them than obviously going to uh, your bricks and mortar shop. Also the supermarkets are what killed the virgins and towers because they were selling chart CDs as los- loss leaders. And thus, you know, if you wanted your Robbie Williams, your Oasis, you go and get them at Tesco's uh, with your loo paper and your tins of beans rather than having to go into tower or a virgin and such like. So, so it was this kind of thing of trying to tell the story of the rise and fall of the British record shop. And uh, obviously by the time I finished it, it came out last year, this book, there'd been the resurrection as we now know with all these little boutique vinyl shops. You know, the kids weren't buying CDs, all the CD, uh, you know, mega stores were gone. But, um, you know, some classic shops survived, including Rough Trade, still in R- Ladbroke Grove, expanding... Uh, into uh, Brick Lane and that. And then, um, you know, these new little places, as we see down in Frensham Street, Pure Vinyl, uh, Lion Vibes and, Greeny- and the Greenville Arcade and that. And I thought, seeing I've only got a few minutes, rather than read you anything, I just thought I'd mention a little bit of Brixton history that I found while well doing the research. So obviously, Brixton, always a shopping hub. Pre-World War II, where would you go for your 78s? We'd go to Morley's, who had a big record department, and you could get gramophones in there, and that would have all the kind of current 78s. There was also a British home stores in Brixton doing similar kind of stuff. And again, the Granville Arcade, now unfortunately known as Brixton Village, but uh, always a hub for music. And there was a little chain of record shops across the south from Brighton up through, I don't think it went any further than Brixton, LNH Cloaks, and they had a really good shop apparently in the 50s there, selling lots of jazz, rhythm and blues, stuff like that. It um, lasted until the 70s apparently, and then came um, a reggae shop, which is appropriate for how Brixton was changing. Again, with reggae, the arrival of the West Indians started changing things, obviously, and the music being consumed here. One of the old guys I talked to said he bought a Boogie In My Bones by Laurel Aitken, in a shop in um, Water Lane, so just, just somewhere around here. And that was in the late 1950s, and uh, he was saying it was a really good shop, it sold jazz, easy listening, pop, and it sold the new music, you know, Clipso, Ska, stuff like that, coming out of the West Indies. The most famous of uh, the Brixton shops back in the day was Desmond's Hip City. This was uh, on Atlantic Ave, and uh, Desmond's, it existed from uh, the early 60s until 1980. It featured in TV programs and movies. and It, it, had, you know, it was a hip-shot Paul Simonon of the class who grew up in Brixton, mentioned how he used to go in there as a teenager just to hang out because it was so cool and hear all the new tunes being dropped and that. And uh, Desmond's was such a focal point for the black community here that in the 70s, the National Front drove a car into it you know, I don't mean as an accident, they actually drove into the front of the shop as a kind of, you know, remonstration as how to hurt Black Brixton. Uh, there was another in the Granville Arcade, again West Indian shop, Joe's record shop, uh, or Joe's record shack as it was sometimes called in that West Indian style and um, Joe here ran a a record label out of it and he put out that album that some of you might have seen called Brixton Cat and uh, It's the first album, it's from the late 60s, to kind of have a Brixton theme. So it's local uh, Jamaican musicians playing kind of, you know, ska and rocksteady and that, and singing about Brixton. So here it was, you know, the local community having record shops that sold their music, that recorded their music, that put it out. This developed, uh, obviously, over the years. There's the great shop on Acre Lane, um, Supertone, that Wally's been running since 1980. I love that shop and he's a great guy. And there used to be, at the bottom of Cold Harbour Lane, very close to, um, we're well just at the start of that main arcade bit, uh, there used to be Black Adred. And obviously, uh, Black Adred um, closed down a few years back when its owner went to jail for money laundering. But I've always said that... If uh, you could be put uh, away for being a surly shopkeeper, he would have been arrested years before that. Um, so yeah, Brixton—it's uh, it's, you know—it's been this hub of you know musical activity throughout the decades. And that—I mean—I I lived here in 1994, and back then there just seemed to be little shops everywhere. You had Red Records on the main road, which sold R&B and. Um, soul and hip-hop and all those contemporary kinds of black music that weren't, you know, West Indian. And, um, you know, in the little arcades there were always places and, you know, it, it was just a fun place to go shopping and it still is pretty good these days. It's still somewhere that I think, you know, the music, the shops, they reflect the community, they reflect what's going on, not just with people listening, but the passion for things. So I'm really happy that we've seen, you know, like Lion Vibes, it is some ways an extension of Altones, which used to be at the front of uh, the Granville, where Altones was Alton Ellis' record shop when I lived here. Alton Ellis, one of the great, great rocksteady and reggae singers, I used to go in there and he'd be standing there, you know, just looking very dapper, you know, in a shop. And uh, so a piece of Jamaican reggae legend, you know, just on Cold Harbor Lane and such. So, you know, there, that's my stories of uh, Brixton, they're here with too much else, including some punk rock stories, seeing we've had a couple of punk rock stories tonight, lots of jazz, techno, dubstep, whatever else. If you read it, I hope you enjoy it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Garth. That was very, very interesting bit of local history. Um, so now we're going to have a break. We're going to have a short break. Please eat, drink, be merry, and don't forget to buy some books at the stall at the back. Some of our readers are selling their books this evening. You might even get them signed. OK, we'll see you in a few minutes. Take it away, Andrew.
2: She wrote a short treatise about the fairies of Colburn Woods.